Welcome to Candyman, a podcast that is not about the movie series Candyman, but in fact about Sweet Tooth on Netflix, as well as the comic book that spawned it. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. And we have a special guest on this episode of the podcast. She is the executive producer of Sweet Tooth and president of Team Downey. Ladies and gentlemen, Amanda Burrell, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. You guys, this is awesome. Yeah, so excited. So excited to chat. We love the series. Had a, such a blast talking about it. It's obviously doing really well on Netflix, but I wanted to take an even bigger step back way towards the beginning. And how did you end up working with Team Downey? How did that uh, get set up? And what does that involve, just generally speaking? Yeah, so I... I come from New York. I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, and I always dreamed of being in the film business in New York. Um, Started an indie film there, worked for a company called Green Street. New York became a really tough place to kind of move up in the indie world. And so I moved to Los Angeles and still did some indie stuff. I did like a little horror movie called Frozen. That's how I actually met Jim Mickle um, back in his Uh. horror days of like, he made this movie, Stakeland, that um, yeah. I love this vampire movie. Um, and we met long ago. And and then one day I got a call back Team Downey and I was like, what are they going to do with me? I don't know. Like he was Iron Man. I'm like, I um, and met the Downies and they're just the best. And Robert loved that I was like this weird indie New York producer kind of <laughs> and really was pumped to do something different with the company and so invited me in with open arms and I did initially focus on the feature side just because that was like we were doing Sherlock 2 and there was a lot of energy in that side of things and and it was a different time in, in TV as well you know it just felt like a different era but I just kind of got really excited about television I think like the rest of the world did where you know, you're watching Sopranos you're watching all these like really deep character stories. So I started just to focus my efforts on television and Susan was like, go for it. Like, let's see what, let's see what you got. So um, <laughs> honestly, and, and, and the cool thing about the Downies too, and to kind of speak about it is like, it was never a job where they were like, what's hot? Like, what's, what's the next great thing? They really liberated, like not great thing. What's the thing that everybody in the town is saying is great. They were always like, do you love it? <laughs> you know, do you feel like they say this all the time? You would be away from your family for like you would you would be so invested. You ha- we have to be all in, and so it kind of liberated us to only focus on those things. And yeah, so kind of in the mire that sweet tooth came out of it. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because obviously the company is more than Robert Downey Jr., but folks think of him, like you were saying, as Iron Man, as Sherlock Holmes, these big movie characters, but he really started in smaller, weirder, quirkier movies. So it sounds like the company kind of takes it back to that a little bit. It's totally his um, his jam. Like he, his dad was this incredible, experimental, weirdo filmmaker, you know, and that's in his heart. He also, I think, really sees himself as someone who brings that energy to the movies that maybe on the surface are, are big blockbusters and stuff, but he approaches it as like just a human story. You know, I think that's why people connected so deeply to Tony Stark. So yes, he he always wanted that. And he also really reveled in the idea of having a bit of power to bring, you know, these things to life that are maybe kind of crazy, like a boy with antlers. Yeah, it was definitely, and Susan is just 
you know, totally a powerhouse producer, totally like the Joel Silver days. She just loves to make stuff. So it was like this kind of collective energy that is just all over the company. So then how did Sweet Tooth first come across your desk and really <laughs> be, fill that hole that you're talking about? So we had a deal at Warner Brothers Television and obviously they have the partnership with DC and a, a junior executive at this time, this guy, Rob Hackett, who now works for Atomic Monster and is a producer, is awesome. He came into my office and he was like, so there's this Jeff Lemire thing about a boy with antlers. And I was like, okay. Um, and then um, read it and immediately we all just couldn't stop thinking about it because it's so emotional. You know, I feel like comic books sometimes can suffer from like just plot, but Sweet Tooth had this like, beating heart at the core of it, which getting to know Lemire now since, and we spent a lot of time talking to him over the years, like, you know, it comes from him. Like his son's name is Gus. He's so deeply connected to all of his emotional kind of fears. And that's in Sweet Tooth and all of these things. So it just felt like it was bigger than all of us kind of in a way. And then we had to figure out who was going to adapt it. Cause that was like, a lot of people were nervous. You know, I think a couple of other companies had taken a run of it. Um, you know, it wasn't new. This was like in 2017, like around there, 2016. And it had been around. We also were like, all right, well, let's see. Like, let's see if we can. <laughs> it kind of felt like, all right, well, other people, where other people have failed, maybe we can kind of figure it out. Well, where did, where did Jim come in then? Because if you look at his filmography, I mean, you were saying earlier that you were a fan of his work, but it doesn't necessarily lend itself to sweet, all ages-ish fairy tale or like Amblin-esque fairy tale. So how did his name crop up initially? Jim's a funny guy. You guys have met him. He, all of his, his stuff is really dark, but he's like the warmest, loveliest human. Yeah. He's just so, he's so chill. And he just like, he's like floats through the conversation while then diving into these very deep, like, well, we just wanted to have a little light at the corner to give us a flare. And we're like, whoa. Like, And he like talks about his dogs. Like they're his babies. Like he's so, and he loves his partner, Linda. And like, he's just, he's such an actually warm and gooey kind of guy. <laughs> he's going to hate me saying this. Um, Cause he's definitely, <laughs> <laughs> but he is, he's a really, wonderful like kind human and his manager Jeremy Platt who's awesome called me and was obsessed with Sweet Tooth and was like you know Jim has been obsessed with this for years and wanted to make it as a feature and and I was like are you kidding like what okay like let's see you know and it was it was really just in those early conversations where he's so inside of it he's so got it like how you know that's what we always look for is like is like he totally got what it was. But then also, and we spent a lot of time talking about this at Team Downey, is like he was the most unbelievably passionate. He just couldn't stop thinking about it, couldn't stop talking about it, couldn't. And it was just infectious. And that kind of gets everybody just excited and you start seeing it automatically. So I, I think that we had to convince Warner Brothers a bit because they were like, Oh, who? Um, but, but honestly, also, once they met him, Susan Rovner and Clancy over there, they were just like, we get it. Yeah, it became kind of this infectious whirlwind, even though it wouldn't have been an obvious one to one. You touched on this a little bit in your last answer, but when you're trying to tackle a tone like this, how do you make sure that everybody from a production standpoint, from a producer standpoint, is kind of hitting everything correctly? Because particularly with this, given 
I, I, a lot of people have made the, a run at the, like, we're going for that very 80s Amblin Goonies style thing. And it falls flat so Hard. often. It feels Hard fake. To... It feels forced. But Sweet Tooth really does reach it. And that's such a weird line to hit correctly. So from your perspective, from your job, what do you do to kind of nuance that to make sure it stays on track? Well, we always had like a really clear true north. We always wanted it to be about Gus's point of view um, and the childlike point of view. We spent a lot of time talking about that, about how when a child looks out into a junkyard where we would see like, oh, despair, oh, look at humans, what they do or whatever. They see like adventure and possibility and like endless. And, and what the future holds is like not one they they have to charge towards it. So it was always like very clear to us that if we keep focused on that, we were in great shape. I think also we didn't want it to be saccharine. Like it, Jim really isn't that saccharine guy. He's not like, and so it was always that tension. And we took it really seriously. Like it wasn't like we never wanted to do a, like a pastiche. <laughs> it felt like we wanted to really do, we wanted to tell the story authentically so I don't know how we pulled it off. It was probably a bunch of a bunch of decisions. But again, in addition to the passion, it's always about with a partnership, like seeing the same thing. And we kind of all saw what it needed to be. And then you can kind of bring everybody in, you know? Well, talk to us. Uh, we were actually talking about this before we went on officially. But talk to us about this timeline here, because we know, first of all, it took a long time to actually get this to Netflix, but it initially was going to Hulu, then moved over to Netflix. You filmed it during COVID. There's so many different things that are so wild in the story. I'd love to hear from you, just kind of uh, talk through the whole thing. Give us the fairy tale journey that you went on <laughs> to get this on the air. So Jim Nickel came on board initially just to direct it. Um, we were going to find another writer. But then he called one day and was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. We were like, okay, let's do it. Um, and then we sold it to Hulu as like this pitch presentation that he visually had like all, and we just had such a, a fun time visually on that. And Jordan Hellman and Sasha Silver at Hulu were just like unbelievable champions. I can honestly say like really got it, really wanted it. And then when Jim turned in his script, it was like we were going we were so pumped uh, and we were making it in May of 2019 in New Zealand, which was kind of always our weird fantasy, but then that became a reality. It was incredible. We felt like we had gotten it so right. And, you know, Christian we cast and Nanza we cast and Will Forte was like so excited to be there. It was like, it was, it kind of felt like this perfect thing. And then we shot and it was, it turned out so beautiful and we were so proud. And then Hulu, unfortunately, wasn't able to, to go forward with it. And our executives there still are, are pretty heartbroken as they should be because they were really oh. instrumental. They're really, we've definitely gotten a lot of text from them and they were really instrumental. Like I can't overstate that, but ultimately they couldn't move forward with it. We were devastated. I was on the set of Perry Mason, which we made for HBO last year. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. Like we're, we're, the dream is, you know, it's, it's been a long journey. And then um, Susan Rovner at Warner Brothers called me and she's like, I'm not letting this die. This is not, it's not dying. It's not going. And we were like, okay. Wow, that's <laughs> um, awesome. That's she was exciting. literally the most amazing. And she always was behind us, but like literally lit a fire. She's now running Peacock, which totally makes sense. She was like, I'm not, we're not letting this go. We're going to make this. We were figuring this out. And 
when she she said, I know exactly who needs to do it at Netflix. And she called them. They screened it. And like not even 30 minutes later, they called and were like, we. Wow. Have, it uh, was like. That's amazing. Breathtaking. Yeah. You see, you see their name pop up on your phone. You're like, well, we should, let's answer. We should answer. <laughs> yeah. It was like, you know, it, it, there's always that thing of like, you know, bad news travels slow and good news travels quickly or whatever like that is. And we were like, Oh, I guess this is the, the quick one. Um, and they just were pitching us like very quickly. And then we were off to the races. Honestly, they really, pushed us to think about the audience in a different way, to think about their audience, but also to talk about how they feel like we could reach a broader audience than we kind of were. We weren't just, in, we weren't in those conversations and they just invited us. And then we were off to the races. We did the writer's room. We got Beth Schwartz, who was an incredible add to this team. And we just, we had an incredible writer's room, all of whom were so passionate. And then we wrote most of it. And Jim was supposed to go to New Zealand and we were going to follow. And Evan, my colleague, was already going there. And, you know, the pandemic hit. <laughs> and our producer there who had done the pilot, we had most of our uh, folks from the crew from 2019. We had such a great time in 2019. Everybody wanted to come back, even though they were getting a lot of Lord of the Rings. Like, <laughs> we really wanted our crew. Draw, magnetism. Uh, exactly. <laughs> then we were... Our producer called Mel and she said, I think that we're going to be okay. <laughs> and we were like, what? And we were like, yeah, Jacinda seems like she got, she has this lockdown, but she was like, I think that we're going to be able to shoot. And then we were, and it was like, we, there were a lot of, and we can get deep. I, I'm curious how deep you want to get into the COVID. No, I'm actually really curious about that in particular, because I don't remember the exact number, but basically nobody was allowed to shoot in New Zealand, right? Except for you guys and maybe one or two other productions that I believe were native to New Zealand. So how did that happen? How did you convince them that that was going to be okay? And is shooting under COVID three times harder, nine times harder, or an undefined <laughs> amount of more difficult? You know, what's funny. So, so we were, so Lord of the Rings is there. It's a small country. Like there's 5 million people. In the whole <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, right. So Lord of the Rings was there. Cowboy Bebop was there. And then it was us. And we were kind of the like little and like nobody, like we were just the like little, little guys over here. Um, but to be honest, they like, they were like, look, you can let in this many people, which I think at the, at the beginning was 25 um, everybody else had to be local and, and we just, and, and they all had to quarantine and, you know, which was not cheap, but the hurdles, once you're there, so we had to quarantine for two weeks, but then there was no COVID in the population, you know, and, and on set, we still did COVID protocols because it was Warner brothers. And because honestly, like also the Kiwi crew was like, yeah, we just want to do it to make sure everybody feels safe. Like, oh, so nice. <laughs> I know, I know. It was like, honestly, you're like, but also, we, so it was really only on set that we would have to wear masks. We had to adhere to things like, um, you know, the amount of extras we were able to have. It was the same, like, it's only, it was only like a hundred you're allowed to have. And there's a very clear cycling that you have to have through it. But, but there wasn't that like anxiety in the air. You know what I mean? Where like people go out and you're like, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it was it was a, a, lo a much lower pitch because, you know, the government was really um, locking down the borders. So, you know, we were concerned about finding local cast. We just didn't know um, if we could. But honestly, we 
found some incredible people, Nancy and Doug and, and I mean, so many of our cast is, is actually local. Um, so we were lucky, but I, it was hard in some ways because of the masks and, you, you know, at, at the wrap party, we finally saw people's full faces, but um, <laughs> other than that, it was, we, we, we got really lucky. Does that, did it affect anything in particular having a relative limit in terms of the extras? I mean, you still have big scenes like the attack on the zoo and the train station scene and things like that. But I imagine there's at least some creative shooting that needs to happen because you can't have, you can't scale up quite as big potentially as you'd want to. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's interesting is that like, we were just very strategic. The train station, we kind of kept the location slightly smaller, um, so that it felt more cramped. We spent a lot of time like thinking about that. In some ways it helped us that story-wise, we were not talking about an explosion of humanity. <laughs> you know, we were talking about <laughs> the reverse. So in some ways it felt like natural to our story and it wasn't as prohibitive as, as, you would think, but we had to get creative. That the final scene with the last men and stuff like that, like we definitely had to had to be thoughtful about how to how to make it look like there's more people than there actually were. Yeah, uh, we talked with uh, Jim a bit about um, the watching this show. Really, f- it felt like the first show or the only show I've seen where going through COVID, uh, this was it was reflected in the show without being like, look, it's COVID, um, and the fact that this was also about a pandemic felt like we got to sort of see ourselves in this. And I, I, I wonder if, if you felt that way while you were making it, while it was happening. You know, when we made the pilot in 2019, we thought it was so far-fetched. I mean, we were like, this is, this is really sci-fi. Like we were really out there. <laughs> and um, I remember sending Jim like early, he was in the writer's room and sending him like the video of Wuhan, like empty, you know, the drone, there was like a yeah. video that was going around. And we were like, this is trippy. Like, this is kind of, you know, and then obviously it, it it escalated in such a way. And then it was even weird when, you know, there were some choices that were made. It was like, we were talking about maybe it's blood type related and all this stuff. And then some of that stuff started to come out. We were like, what is, so it actually. This um, is stressful that we yeah. made this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we were just, it was just so bizarro. And we, we were like. We, we just couldn't believe the connection. But it also felt like, wow, this is the conversation that we want to be having. We want to be having a conversation about not just like moving towards despair, but the hope for the future. So it kind of emboldened us to even more so lean into that. I would say that was already part of the story, but it felt like we need, we all needed to feel like the future was still going to be bright, even though... Well, and like Justin was saying, and we did again talk to Jim about this a little bit, but there's those little touches in there where he was saying that the masked family in episode two, for example, was already there, which you watch that scene and that feels like a scene that we lived over the past year and a half or so. But then other things, even in the last episode, you have those two guys fighting about whether they should wear masks, whether they can vape or not. Uh, It's great. I mean, it was good to be able to see that and laugh at that stuff and enjoy it. Not you know we're not in the rearview mirror, but at least you were able to experience it in a very different way with the show coming out now. I think totally. And those guys at the end, that was such a swing for Jim. He wrote that script, and I remember getting those the, those scenes. I'm like, this is like really funny. Like I don't know, are people going to know it's part of the part of our show? But it was such a good idea, and we had restarby. Those guys are so good. Um, yeah, so it was it was almost like we were ready for it um, by the time we were filming there too. 
Yeah. Another thing we were touching on with Jim that I'd be curious to get your input on is structuring something for a season one. I think there was a time when a lot of shows, particularly, frankly, Netflix shows were kind of coming out and being like, we got this five season plan. You're not really going to get any plot in the first season. We're going to drag it out slowly. (laughs) But this really lays a lot on the table here in the first season in a really big way. We get some answers. There's some teases there at the end with Birdie showing up, of course, among many other things, and the cast really changing and crisscrossing. But from again, from your perspective, what was important here in terms of packing the season one full of things versus thinking about potentially a multi-season arc for the show? It was it was an interest I think it was a lot of Netflix actually. Um I'm gonna because mm. Our pilot, in some ways, was like the first act of a movie. You know, it was, it was a lot slower, I think. And Hulu was less like hard. They didn't, they didn't really know or tell us how they were going to be releasing it. So we weren't really sure, is it going to be week to week or whatever. Netflix came in and they were like, look, <laughs> you need to keep people hooked. This is what you got to do. You got to make sure that people are going to be invested and they, they really, they sat us down very early in the writer's room and said, all of these little pieces need to pay off. People are going to be reacting in real time. And they really encouraged us to, to push story forward. But I also think that we really reveled in opening the world, having Amy, having Wendy, having seen Sing with more detail. You know, I think it allowed us, it kind of liberated us. It could have easily just been a show about... Jep and Gus going to Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, although I can also tell you that we have five hours with a child. <laughs> so on set, right. so that also informed it. In addition to Netflix, it was, we can't just be shooting with Christian. So we have to open up our world. All of these things kind of encouraged us to churn story and plot and not, not hold back too much because once you see these characters and feel them and, and witness them, you kind of want to give them more story. And I love hearing that because uh, it's like taking a production limitation and really turning it into a choice that, that comes across like this super confident creative choice uh, where you're like, we're going to put the tripod legs on this story out in these three wildly different places. And you just have to trust that we're going to earn them not only coming together, but sort of crisscrossing in this way that you could not have seen coming. Exactly. Exactly. That was definitely the goal. I, I'm glad it feels like it was pulled off organically. Definitely, it, it really does. Like, uh, so we have five hours. How many doubles can we get? You know, but it, yeah. Ooh. So you shot the pilot in 2019. You shot the series in 2020. Right now we're here in 2021. There's not necessarily news about a second season yet, but from a production perspective, from a producer's perspective, how terrifying is it? that Christian is just getting taller as we go. <laughs> well, I don't know if Jim told you that we were like stalking him between 2019 and, and us. <laughs> we like, we were, you know, Lisa, his mom is just the best. And she would like send us photos. She's like, he's, you know, like, we'd be like, oh my God. He's not we're growing. <laughs> we're not giving him any vitamins. <laughs> like, I don't want to like hope for these things, but he, <laughs> the weird thing about him though is, I mean, not the weird thing, but the most amazing thing is like his face really like stayed but he just kind of got bigger and and we benefited also like he got so much better like between our pilot even like he's so beautiful in our pilot so cute in our pilot but he just i mature has matured and is incredible 
that said, we need to be starting shooting now. That would be really <laughs> <good>. <laughs> and uh, feel free to tell Netflix that um, we need to uh, we need to get on that. So. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, before we get to any season two talk, and I do want to ask you about that, uh, Jim also was talking about the crazed production process right at the end there, where it kind of moved up a little bit. What was, what was your job there in terms of keeping everything on pace and making sure that the show got delivered correctly when Netflix needed it? Post is, is massive. Um, post on this show is massive. There was a lot of footage. We were very efficient with it. I mean, it's all hiring the right team. We have this editor, Michael Berenbaum, who had worked with Jim before and who is just a master. Like he just totally got the show, knew the show. He did our pilot. He did so much of the show. It was a gauntlet. Um, Warner Brothers was with us every step of the way. I think the biggest challenge with Netflix in post is that you have to, like they're dropping it to the world. So every language, every, and, and then in addition, like you're marketing to the world. It's like, it's That's not nice. like, just like finish it up and get the VFX going. Um, and on Perry Mason, we had the advantage of, you know, it was week to week. So VFX could kind of roll out. This was just constant whack-a-mole. Um, and, but I do think it was all about the team. It was Baronbaum's incredible. You know, our composer was incredible. And Jim, Jim's experience, I think, in the indie space, and I think, honestly, my experience, but also, like, just everybody on this process, like, it kind of made us all, like, we just are fast. Jeff Gray, the the composer is so fast. We also had a lot of the music already figured out in production. The vision was really clear. So it wasn't, post was never really as much of an exploration as it was an execution. I mean, it was mostly though, like we also had to do it virtually. You know, we had to be in sound mixes virtually. We all had to like, everybody was like all over the world doing different times. I stayed in New Zealand for a little bit longer. So it was just all hands on deck. And if you ever needed to be calm, you just had James Brolin jump on the Zoom for a little bit. <laughs> I know, he's so such a sweet man. He, part of that was like, that came from Robert. Robert's old friends with him. And he was like, he has to be the voice. And we were like, Okay. And then we heard him like, oh, of course he has to be the voice. And now he's like the biggest fan of the show. He sends emails and calls and he's such a sweet man. But now I can't imagine anybody else. That's great to hear. I mean, not to be too whatever, but we kind of speculated a little bit on the podcast, like how much James Brolin actually knows about the show, whether he just walked into a sound booth and was like, truth is lies. Lies are truth. Well, see you later. That's my day. But he actually knows and likes the show. That's great to oh, hear. Oh, yeah, he totally does. He's like, he's like, well, I'll fly wherever I need to for press. We're like, nope, COVID's still happening. Like, <laughs> you're, you're fine. Like, he's so all in. And I think initially, Robert definitely had to convince him a bit. You know, boy with antler. Like, it was, you know, but um, <laughs> now all in. Yeah. Well, let's talk about season two a little bit. Uh, I mean, I understand that, obviously, that's a little bit up to Netflix. But certainly, people look at Netflix in terms of whether they decide to renew or cancel thing is this almost mystery box of how does it work? I don't know how much you can talk about it. We did talk to Jim about it a little bit, but from your perspective, what are they looking for? What do you need to do on your end to kind of move that ball forward? So our philosophy on everything is to just pretend like it's happening. Like we're not, we're not stopping. Um, And that's the same thing that happened with COVID. Like COVID was like, like we just, we're just going. We're going to, um, there's always been an ambition 
Jim's always, even on set, even with Jeff Lemire, we've talked about season two ideas. We've already like, we're like, where's Amy Simons in the world? Like we're already like, we're fully like making a plan. I mean, Christian Convery is already making the show and like he's ready. Like we're all fine. Um, <laughs> so really it's just going to take them saying go, but we're, once they say that we're fully ready. That's our, our philosophy is just don't stop until they tell us to. That's great. I love that. I'm That's picturing Christian it. just standing in the middle of a field in New yeah. Zealand and he's like, where are the cameras? Let's go. 100%. He literally, and a deal, the cast is so pumped. Like Dania, she's like all in. Like, so everybody's just ready to keep going. Awesome. Before we let you go here, are there any other things coming out from Team Downey that you'd want to plug that people should be checking out other than Sweet Tooth? Though everybody should be watching Sweet Tooth as many times as possible. <laughs> that's I mean it's so awesome um we are going to be making Perry Mason season two this year which is really exciting um we're really pumped about that and we have a lot that we're brewing um you know we're still we're, we're actively talking about Sherlock three in a really big way for Robert but we have a lot going on <laughs> more to be announced soon but you know we have a deal at HBO we have for television that we love and we're, we love that, that team there. And we just really want to make sweet tooth season two. And, and then on, on the feature side we're you know, we still want to make movies. So stay busy. <laughs> One more question for you. So on the podcast, uh, in addition to recapping episodes of sweet tooth, we've also been reviewing pieces of candy. Last episode, Jim, chose the winner of the syrup cup, his favorite piece of candy that we reviewed from season one. Uh, so since that's done, that's in the rear view mirror. I just wanted to hear from you. What is your favorite type of candy? What are you really into? Super easy. Um, Sour Patch Kids forever. They used to have a like thing, like a cartoon on the packet that was like a redheaded, curly redheaded girl. <laughs> and I was like, this is my candy. It's totally my kids <laughs> like know it. Like if they see it, they're like, mom will want that. It's all Sour Patch Kids all day. So wow. amazing <laughs> choice. I love it. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for coming on the podcast and fingers crossed. We're watching sweet tooth soon. Yeah, we're uh, season two. Put the energy out there. Thank you. And if you'd like to support our podcast, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 PM to crowdcast and YouTube. Come hang out. We would love to chat with you about sweet tooth. iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice to subscribe, listen, and follow the show at comic book live on Twitter, comicbookclublive.com for this podcast and more. We'll hopefully see you at sweet tooth season two. 